This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Success Academy Charter Schools, a network of charter schools in New York City, is one of the country's most intriguing educational institutions. On the one side, the schools are among the highest performing schools in the state of New York, judging from the performance of the students on state proficiency tests, despite the fact that the students who attend Success Academy are disadvantaged students. On the other side, Success Academy Charter Schools has invoked the wrath of many political leaders in New York City, including that of its mayor, Bill de Blasio. Now, how can such a successful institution get itself into such astonishing political controversy? Are New York politicians completely wrongheaded, or is Success Academy something less than what it seems to be? Or is something else going on? So in a search for the truth about Success Academy, Robert Pondicio, a former school teacher and now a senior fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, has spent an entire academic year inside one of Success Academy's schools in a full-length book entitled How the Other Half Learns Equality, Excellence, and the Battle for School Choice. He gives a frank account of the inner workings of Success Academies. I am very pleased to have Robert Pondicio with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Robert, for joining me. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. Well, Robert, let's start with some basic facts. First of all, how many Success Academy schools are there in New York City? Sure. The network is about 12 or 13 years old now. It started in 2006 with a single school in Harlem. Uh, For the current academic year, they're up to about 48, 50 schools. Uh, heavily concentrated in elementary schools and, and serving 17,000 students, all, all of them in the city of New York. Unlike a lot of other high-profile C- CMOs, charter management organizations, they are a, a one-city outfit, so they're entirely in New York City. So about 48 schools, 17,000 kids, um, heavily elementary, then a few middle schools, and at present, I believe, two high schools. Uh, but if, if they manage to, to maintain uh, all or most of those students, then they are, there's that, that egg in the python, so to speak. They're going to need a lot more uh, high schools to, to keep up. Well, Eva Moskowitz is the chief executive officer of Success Academy, and she is obviously the one person who is responsible because she was there from the very beginning, and Correct. she's still there, which is an amazing continuity story That's right. all by itself. But but what's her background? Because I don't think she's the typical educator. No, no, I think that's exactly right. She, she rose to prominence in New York City, or at least she's a familiar figure to New Yorkers because she was a city council person uh, before she was the founder of Success Academy. Uh, she was, a, a, I believe she has a PhD from the University of Virginia in history, so she, uh, her parents are academics. Uh, she was headed on that academic track uh, as well. So in a way, uh, it, it's the politics piece of her background that was the surprising part, not the academics. But to your point, she was known for, for many years as this kind of fiery city council person and perpetually rumored to be interested in, in running for mayor as, as well in New York City. But she's been the CEO and the founding CEO of Success Academy uh, since 2006. Well, how did she get uh, an authorization? Because you have to be authorized to be a charter school in the state of New York, and I think it's a statewide board that does this. So That's right. did she have any trouble getting authorized way back when? Interestingly enough, um, I, I guess tech, I just called her the founder. Technically, that's probably not correct. The, the charter was uh, written and uh, uh, pursued by two uh, hedge fund billionaires, they may not be billionaires, one of them is, 
uh, Joel Greenblatt and John Petrie, both of whom are still on their board uh, to, to, to this day, they wrote the original charter and then hired Moskowitz before the first school opened uh, to, to, to run it. So, so those, those two gentlemen steered the, uh, the, the, the charter through. Also keep in mind, Paul, it, it, 2006 was a very different environment in New York for, for charter schools. Uh, you had a very charter-friendly mayor and, and uh, education chancellor in, in Michael Bloomberg and Joel Klein. Uh, it wasn't nearly the, the, the chilly reception that charters get from, from the current uh, mayor, Mayor de Blasio, whose name you invoked earlier. So anyhow, so the, the beginnings are in a context where there's a lot of support in the political atmosphere right. for, for something like this. It's only later on that things uh, turn sour. But let's focus in on success academies and get, get inside the school. Mm-hmm. You were inside one of these uh, schools. <clears throat> right. Uh, and, and from reading your book, I get a sense that the there are very high expectations sure. for teachers. They, the teachers have to have the long hours and they have uh, 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 many weeks of the school year and they are expected to do a lot while yeah. they're there. So tell me about the teachers. Who sure. are they? Well, I would say it's, it's high expectations for every adult in the child's life, uh, up to and including, perhaps somewhat controversially, the child's parents. Uh, that's a, a major piece of, of this book as well. Um, but about the teachers. Look, one thing I find interesting, since we were invoking 2006 in the earlier days of the charter movement, uh, one thing I find fascinating about Success Academy, having spent so much time there, you may remember 20 years ago, if you walked down the halls of a KIPP or Achievement First or Uncommon School, uh, then as now you would see classrooms named not you know Room 222, as it were, but named after the college where the teacher inside had had gone to, 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 to school, often, you know, Teach for America Corps members, for example. So you'd walk down the halls of a KIPP and you'd see college uh, classrooms named for colleges like Harvard, Yale, Tufts, Stanford, Michigan, etc. You, you see some of that at Success Academy, but you also see far more, um, I don't want to uh, be dismissive of these schools, but schools that are that are not those elite schools. You see Hunter College, SUNY Oneonta, uh, Iona, um, etc. At Bronx One in Success Academy, the school where, where I set most of this book, there's a kindergarten class named BMCC, which if you're from New York, you'll recognize that as Borough of Manhattan Community College. So uh, however they're getting these astonishing results, it's not with uh, you know the, those elite graduates of, of elite universities. They're getting these results uh, with the graduates of some of the schools in New York and elsewhere who produce the, 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 the same teachers who teach across the streets. So, so the teachers are just ordinary folks, but do they burn out? Do they, oh, sure. Is the turnover rate high? Yeah, the turnover rate is astonishingly high. And, and by the way, I don't want to give the sense that they are uh, you know, j- just, uh, just off the street, as it were. Uh, success uh, and, and Eva Moskowitz uh, make a great, uh, they valorize significantly skill and will, as it were. They're looking for a certain type. Uh, high energy, willing to work hard, s- takes feedback. Um, I recently had, uh, this came out after the book, I had a, a meeting with a, a former principal and staff developer for, for success who described uh, the hiring process and, and, and she almost seemed proud of her ability to make teacher candidates cry. Uh, during their demo lessons and then give them feedback. And what she said is if they can pick themselves off the floor 
and, um, and, and demonstrate that they've listened to the feedback and the next lesson is better using the feedback, well, then I know I've got a good candidate. So, so they're, they're, they, they seem to be looking for personality match or, or that skill and will as much as anything else. Well, is that how they recruit them? They, they have a teacher come in, give a presentation, and, then, sure. uh, and, and which means teach a class? Or yeah, I think, I think that's right. But I'm not sure that's remarkable or unique to success. Uh, but the, the thing that is unique to success is uh, that, that, that extraordinarily well-articulated and strenuous adult culture. Uh, very high expectations, uh, and again, on, on every adult in, in, in the child's life, uh, the, the building administrators, the teachers, the parents, etc. Well, let's talk about the parents, sure. because uh, apparently that's something that's really, really important here at uh, the it, it seems to be, yeah. Uh, the, the, it's probably the, 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 the most significant piece of news, I guess, that emerged from, from my reporting. Um, because look, you know, you, you know this as well as anybody, Paul. We we have this idea that charter schools, uh, because they are oversubscribed, charter schools have to have lotteries for admission. This gives the appearance of a randomly chosen parent body. Um, Success Academy, like every other uh, high performing or or high demand charter school, has a lottery. And it's oversubscribed by a factor of six to one. So there's roughly six applicants for every single seat. Um, but because they have this extremely well-articulated culture, as I say, they know what they stand for. They know what they will not stand for. And to their credit, they are quite um, aggressive in messaging this to prospective parents. So despite the fact that it's a six-to-one uh, ratio of applicants to seats, after the lottery, uh, they, they make the parents jump over some hurdles, as it were. You have to come to a welcome meeting where they orient you towards the school culture, the expectations, um, you know, the amount of reading a parent is expected to do with their child, for example, uh, showing up at political rallies, etc. Um, and again, very, very forthright about their school culture, which is which is quite demanding. So they warn you ahead of time. Yeah, they warn you. If your child's going separately. to our school, this is what you're going to be expected uh, as, as, to do. That's right. As, as one uh, leader of one of these meetings said to, to the parents, uh, she, she, she said, um, this is not Burger King. You don't get to have it your way. And, and everybody laughed, but she was not kidding. They, they, they meant it, you know, this is our culture, these are our rules, and, and if you don't like it, then we're not for you. Uh, and they're not changing for anybody. After the welcome meeting, there's, uh, you have to confirm your interest via email, then you have to come for a uniform fitting. Even if you're on the waiting list, you come for the uniform fitting. Then you go to a dress rehearsal for kindergarten, because most of their, their new students are kindergarten students. And at every step of the way, some number fall away, and we don't know why. Could it be um, they accept an offer from a different charter school, they listen to the, the, the sermons about uh, their high standards and say, yeah, I'm not sure this is right for me, and they, or, or, or they just lack the organizational skills to continue to follow through. Uh, the upshot is at the end of the day, your chances of getting in as a new parent are closer to one in two than, than, than one in six. Uh, and you end up with, in my opinion... And this uh, is among people who showed the energy to apply in that's the first exactly, place. Yes, so this is not sort of a right. random sample of uh, a cross-section well, of people exactly living in, in a poor neighborhood. Yeah, I think we, we like to think that it's a random sample, um, and some of us are quite wedded to that narrative. I just don't think it's true. 
And that's, let me let me quickly add, Paul. That's not a criticism. Uh, in other words, I see no reason that that uh, a motivated parent should not have the ability to to send his or her child to school with the children of, of similarly engaged and motivated parents. This is this is an unquestioned right. If you're an affluent American, I see no reason to deny it uh, to to low-income people of color. Well, now how about middle-class people? Do they yeah. do they send their children to success academies? Yeah, I think so. People with some means. Yeah. Uh, sure. It's interesting because. This school, this network of schools started in Harlem, uh, then they branched out to the Bronx and elsewhere. They do have a few outposts in more affluent neighborhoods uh, that are, are uh, seem quite popular with, with, uh, with, with uh, non-people of color. On the Upper West Side, Hell's Kitchen, Union Square, where, near where I live in New York City, uh, Cobble Hill in Brooklyn. These are, sli- are, are more diverse or affluent, even affluent areas. And, and uh, yeah, they, 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 this, is, this is unusual, right, Paul? There's not, you don't see this very often in our line of work. Typically, you get um, pedagogies and curricular models, for example, that start on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and then somebody says, oh, this is working so well here, let's take this to the South Bronx. It doesn't usually go the other way, that this is, you know, this is something that's working really well in Harlem. Oh, people on the Upper East Side want this now. Uh, but you're seeing that here. You do see some of that. So now people talk about segregation and mm-hmm. charter schools. Uh, are these schools, all of them, either black or white? Or yeah, some of them are quite diverse. But in the main, in the aggregate, among those 17,000 students that we discussed at the, at the, the, the top of the podcast, uh, it's heavily, I don't have the data at arm's length, but I believe it's 85% roughly are, are people of color, or students of color. So and predominantly low income, um, more, more, far more than not free and reduced price lunch, for example. So, so what's the, what's the teaching strategy, the learning strategy? How? Yeah. I mean, the the the, the test the scores question. are amazing. Student performance is is uh, off the charts. Yep. Uh, but but. How are they learning? What is the learning process? Yeah, like? it's interesting because, um, as, as you may know, Paul, I, I, I'm a curriculum fetishist in a sense. I'm a, you know, I, I say that I'm an unrepentant disciple of E.D. Hirsch Jr. and core knowledge. That's kind of my flavor of education. Um, so that's, that's, that's guided much of my career. Um, so I walked into Success Academy expecting to write a book about curriculum and instruction because that's generally what I write about. I ended up surprising myself somewhat by writing a book that's probably more about school culture in, at the end of the day than about curriculum and instruction. I mean, obviously, I do write about the, the, the student experience. Um, so the curriculum is it's, it's perfectly fine. Uh, as a Hersheyan, I, I, I say, maybe, maybe have even said this in the book. I should, not, I should uh, really press you on sure. this Hersheyan now. Yeah, what, yeah. Cor- what, cor- does, what does Cornell... Like, E.D. Hirsch Jr., my North Star in education, is the guy who wrote Cultural Literacy uh, over 30 years ago uh, and and insists quite rightly, in my view, that, um, and particularly for low-income American children, uh, all children need a a rich, varied education. All the history, science, geography, art, music, etc., just the full, well-rounded elementary education that generations of Americans just took for granted. And, and this has nothing to do with uh, Hirsch or others wanting to impose, you know, as, as they're sometimes charged with a, a dead white male canon on American children. It's about language proficiency. Um, and you got to know what you're talking about to be proficient. The average speaker or writer uh, makes assumptions about what his or her listeners and readers know. 
language is, I'm not sure whose metaphor this is, but it's an apt one. Um, language is like an iceberg, where the, the written word is the small bit that's floating above the, the water line, but below that is, is a massive amount of assumed knowledge and vocabulary, and that's what language proficiency is. So uh, E.D. Hirsch is famously associated with this view, which I uh, admire and adhere to, that, that ch- all children, and low-income children in particular, since you're less likely to get it outside of the home, absolutely must have this kind of rich, full, complete, particularly elementary and middle school education. So in the case of Success Academy, uh, they are not a so-called core knowledge school. Those are the schools that Hirsch is associated with. But I say, you know, Hirsch would feel comfortable there. They get science every day. They, they don't skimp on art and music and dance and gym, for example. They spend a lot of time out of the classroom on so-called field studies, what you and I would just call field trips. Um, they do what they call project-based learning, but is really closer to uh, a cross-curricular unit where they're studying, you know, bread and bridges and, and, and whatnot across the various subjects in their school. So it's a, it's a, it's a knowledge-rich experience in some, even though it's not necessarily following the, the, the Hersheyan um, uh, curricular model per, per se. Uh, so that's, that's, that's good. Uh, they, they do some things with balanced literacy that I'm less enamored of. Um, uh, a lot of reading skills and strategies, which I've frankly been critical of over the years. On the other hand, uh, their shared texts that, that they use uh, in, in their literacy classes uh, do tend to be content-rich and challenging and whatnot. They, they, they really valorize volume of reading. I mean, the kids have to read six books a week on their own uh, from the very earliest days of school. So it's a very language-rich experience. Um, their math is interesting. They, 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 that's probably their, their, their calling card, in a sense. And again, Eva Moskowitz is the daughter of uh, mathematicians. Um, it's a, a fairly constructivist math program, discovery math, which is not my particular flavor, but, but they do it quite well. So it's not just <clears throat> learn your math table. No, but they don't five. skimp on that either. In uh-huh. other words, they do at the same time um, valorize automaticity. So, you know, you know your math facts by the time you're in, you know, second grade or so. Uh, so, that, so, so, so there's that. Um, but the other thing, too, I mean, they are known for their test scores and, you know, to be quite candid, there's no reason not to be, they, they do uh, test prep the heck out of the kids. Uh, they, they call it Think Mastery Season, and it starts in January, and the kids are taking practice tests most days, uh, you know, which is, and, and it's the, it, they, they place a great deal of emphasis on this. And look, even their literacy uh, uh, curriculum is, is, as I describe it, test preppy at times. In other words, uh, from the earliest days, they are t- trained, in a sense, to attack every piece of text, uh, almost like a puzzle, and decode it. Uh, not decoding in the, in the reading sense, but p- take it apart and, and examine it for the, 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 the genre and, and, and the author's intent and whatnot. So they, they tend to approach every reading task in a way that I think um, pays dividends uh, when it comes time to take standardized tests. So I haven't asked you about the finances mm-hmm. of these schools. Does this take extraordinary sums of money to be? Do you have to have a lot of uh, well-paid staff? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And and honestly, I, I didn't delve too deeply into it since I really my my intent here in the book was really to focus on the student experience. There's a lot of other folks who write about uh, the, the 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 politics and the money. I think it's interesting, but but one of the reasons I wrote this book to begin with was I felt felt like for all of the 
uh, interest and coverage of Success Academy, that very basic question, what do the kids do all day, had gone unanswered. Um, but th this is, to your point, one of the things that uh, Moskowitz and Success Academy are most commonly criticized for. They, they have these gaudy uh, multi-million dollar fundraisers. They raise all kinds of money. Uh, their model is to, to, to get by on, on public funds. Uh, I, I, I have not seen a good, dispassionate uh, accounting of how many of their schools are doing that and how many of them are not. But they're, they're, they're quite uh, careful and precise in their language. They, they, they say, well, our goal is to operate all of our schools on the public dollar eventually. And how, how many years it takes to get from startup to uh, self-financing is, is uh, an open question. At least it's, it, the answer to that question is not known to me. So let's, you, you've mentioned school culture more than once here, and yeah. that is the heart of your book. So, so what is it about the school culture that you think is really the, yeah. the, the central driving force? It's, it's, yeah. I, I would actually go if, if, uh, even further than that, Paul, and say it's probably their greatest success, uh, no pun intended. Um, and this is interesting because, uh, as I often say, I've got a complicated relationship with a lot of these things, and you know, testing is one of the things I have the most complicated relationship with. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not anti-testing, I'm not anti-accountability, quite the opposite, um, but I'm clear-eyed and, and uh, I, I think candid about the fact, or I think we need to be candid about the fact, that for the last 20 or 30 years, testing has had a discernible effect on school culture, not at, just as, at Success Academy, but from one you know, uh, end of the land to the other. Uh, the, 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 the pressure, real or imagined, of standardized testing has had a, a, a effect on, on, on children's experience of school. It just, it just has. Uh, and I don't always love that, but I also don't love what what came before it. I don't sentimentalize the idea, you know, that that everything was good, and then you know, the big bad test came along. That's 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 naive. Um, so uh, <laughs> the warm up to your question. So so uh, look, Success Academy puts testing culture on steroids. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. Uh, they they um, you know it, it 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 comes from their pores practically. Uh, you know, come January, you can walk down this, the halls and you see signs. You know, 46 days until the ELA test, 64 days until the math test, that kind of thing. Um, what's interesting to me about it is 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 how it affects the culture, and this is. I, I describe this in the book. I mean, I don't love aspects of this, but I found myself, you know, not only did I not, not find myself um, appalled by it, I found myself kind of liking what I was seeing there, thinking, how is it that they're doing all these things that, in theory, I tend not to like, but, but I like it the way they do it. What's up with that? And, and I explained this to myself uh, later in the book. I mean, think about this. If you are a low-income person of color, a low-income family of color in a place like the South Bronx, which is where most of this book is set, uh, what reason do you have to think that your, your child is going to have a good relationship with a school? I mean, there's nothing in American history or educational thought or practice that would, that would make you optimistic about what's going to happen when you send your kid to a school in, in, in an urban environment like the South Bronx. Um, so now along comes Success Academy, and yeah, they do all this stuff with test prep, but the teachers are not telling the kids that it's going to be easy, quite the opposite. They're telling them that it's going to be hard, but they're giving them um, attack strategies and practice tests and, and encouragement, and they're calling, literally every night, they call home to talk to mom or dad about how the kid did on that day's practice test uh, and, and what they need to work on for the next one. 
at every step of the way the kid is hearing, you're going to get a three, you're going to get a four, which is passing or above average in, 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 in New York. And then they go out on the test, and damn it, they get a four. But so does everybody else. In other words, all of their friends get threes and fours. Um, uh, you know, their parents are in it, their teachers are in on it. And, and you can say, okay, well, why does it have to be standardized testing? Why can't it be you know, art or dance or music or a child's own passion? But how can there not be something powerful about being in a school culture as, as, a, as a person of color with that baggage that's associated with, with schools? And suddenly you go home thinking, I'm good at school. Here's a piece of paper from the state of New York that says, I'm just as good as the kids in Jericho and Long Island and Scarsdale and anywhere else, you know, and I'm part of a school community where that is not only uh, not remarkable, it's common, it's widespread, it's broadly distributed. So all my friends are capable too. Well, that's exactly right. So I, I just, um, I, I refuse to be blithe about that. I think that's, that is uh, you know, game-changing as a cliche, but if, if anything that's going on at Success Academy is game-changing, surely it's that, creating a school culture where, where high achievement, yes, test scores, where high achievement is, is, is not just valorized, but normalized. So, so do you actually see the students uh, bearing down on a day-to-day -day oh, basis sure. because they know that they got to prepare for this test, so they really do study yeah. and learn that and particular. I think that's right. And look, you know, one of the one of the other criticisms of, of Success Academy that I think is unfair and unwarranted, uh, you know, those who have not been, un it, it's very easy to critique them. Oh, they're harsh. They're militaristic. You know, the kids are in uniforms. They're standing, marching in straight two straight lines. You know, they look like the Catholic school of old. Um, you know, they're, they're not harsh places. I also feel the need to caveat this. As a school teacher myself, I was very rules-oriented. One of, one of my assistant principals at one point during my teaching career called me authoritarian. She did not mean it as a compliment. Uh, so I'm probably... Um, more predisposed to this flavor of so schooling. So you're seeing yourself on steroids. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm, not good, I'm not good enough, Paul, to, to teach at Success Academy. Let's be clear about that. I, I, I just, I'm not capable of working that hard anymore. Um, but I don't find the schools to be harsh. Uh, in, in an entire year, I think I saw one teacher raise his voice to, to a student a single time, and that was also uh, a teacher that I would I would pay dearly to have um, in front of, of my daughter. Well, do they emphasize be nice, uh, be be gentle? Yeah, they're, they're, is that, no, is that no, part I'm, of I'm the... not sure that they would go that far. This is not Kip, you know, um, be be nice, work hard, so to yeah. so to speak. Um, you know, it's it's it is a exacting school culture. It is, but te teachers are teachers, and they have a range of personalities. My point is uh, whether it's tough love, whether it's you know wearing your heart on your sleeve. It's just impossible to spend time in these schools and not be um, uh, struck by the deep investment that you see among these teachers for the, for these children. Um, again, you know, it's uh, even Moskowitz describes this what I'm calling tough love. She says, "What, what is her phrase? Uh, no nonsense, no nonsense nurturer is 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 the affect that she's shooting for." Uh, with her teachers, what she calls a no-nonsense nurturer. It may not be for everybody, it cannot be imposed on everybody, uh, but it seems uh, real and authentic uh, as, as practiced at success. Well, what happens to the child who doesn't fit? There must yeah, be there, are, some... there are surely some of those, yeah. That, that's... So how do they deal with this challenge? Yeah, this is, this is where the story gets complicated and even a little bit ugly. Um, 
Early in the book, uh, I describe a scene where uh, a second grade teacher, the principal, and a couple of other administrators are putting in place a behavior plan to bring a kid down for a landing, so to speak, who is, uh, by their description, the most challenging kid in the school. Um, and that's interesting because one of the things that their uh, success is also criticized for is is counseling out and trying to shed kids uh, who who are uh, hard to handle. So I thought it was interesting. I quietly kept my eye on this kid all year. Then suddenly in March he he disappeared. Um, and and spoiler alert, uh, you find out late in the book that uh, he left and under circumstances that sound frankly quite horrifying. Um, his parents describe uh, repeated calls to 911 to have the child, and I never witnessed this myself, uh, but they, they describe repeated calls to 911 to have the child uh, removed because they claim he was you know, creating unsafe conditions for, for, for other children and whatnot. Um, you do see uh, in the fall of, of, of the, the school year that I was there, they, they identified any number of kids who they called outliers, you know, kids who were having, whether it's behavior problems, were having difficulty learning in that setting. Some of those kids uh, persisted and, and stayed. Some of them were, did not. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it, again, I, I want to be clear about, and clear-eyed about this. Uh, Success Academy does say, look, we're not for everybody. Uh, but they, this is one of the areas where the, some of the criticisms may be more true than not. Uh, it does seem not unreasonable to say that if you are not uh, completely um, on board with your model, that then it becomes an uncomfortable place for you. But one of the things that has always uh, struck me is that it may not take more than a few such instances to communicate to the rest of the students exactly what right. the expectations are. These are not just said, they actually have meaning. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Uh, you know, the other thing, and I, I, I tried to be extremely careful in discussing this in the book, because I simply feel uncomfortable as a writer, as a, as a, as a, a journalist, I guess you would say, in this, in this context, assuming that I, or, or attaching motives to, 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 to things. Um, but I'm also a teacher, and I can reflect on my own experience and compare it to what I saw at Success. So I, I taught at a school. What's kind of interesting is that the, the school that I spent the year at was literally across the street from where I was a student teacher and a, a couple of blocks away from where I taught fifth grade in a traditional public school for, um, for several years, about a decade or so ago. Um, my school was not Success Academy. Let's, let's, uh, let's start with that. Um, very low achieving, lots of behavior problems. So on the one hand, uh, some of the behavior problems uh, that set off alarm bells at Success Academy, I would look at and think, well, you know, that would barely rise to the level of attention in my school. On the other hand, when you have this just-so school culture, um, those attentions or th those, those incidents, those disruptive behaviors seem outsized and magnified all of a sudden. And if you this is just a, a sense that I have. I can't, again, I want to be careful not to uh, in, in, uh, assign motives. But I couldn't help but feel, look, if I'm a 22, 23-year-old teacher in this uh, school culture where everybody is behaving in just a certain way, 
and I've got a kid who I, you know, I can't get to sit down and focus and, and he's disrupting the other kids, that feels like a referendum on, on my ability as a teacher. Is it possible that I overreact to that and, and initiate disciplinary, uh, 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 various disciplinary steps to kind of, um, you know, to, to, to bring that kid uh, uh, to heal? It's, I, I wouldn't discount that. Um, in other words, it's, it's not a simple matter of this behavior is appropriate, this behavior is inappropriate. It feels different in different settings. So, again, it, it's about, about the school culture. Now, what happens when you leave the school and you go elsewhere? There's a lot of concern yeah. that charter schools, because they have a very uh, enclosed environment that's very special and does make people feel very special, that once they leave that and go into a different kind of setting that they haven't really internalized the skills for oh, their performance. That wasn't the question I thought you were going to ask. I thought yeah. you were going to ask about uh, what happens when the kids who don't make it a success go back to the to the, the neighborhood schools. And well, we, we, we can, can talk we about can, that, we too. We can talk about that. But I was thinking no, about I see, the college I see your going question. thing. Sure. That's a, a big topic out there. Right. Um, at this point, it's unknown. Uh, success Academy uh, has graduated only two classes of high school seniors, so they probably have no more than two or three dozen uh, graduates on college campuses, period, and one or two years in. So you, the, the, the data set just doesn't exist yet to see how this brand of education uh, translates into, into college uh, success and, and uh, retention. That said, you know, we, I think we can make some intelligent guesses here. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the work that's been done by the KIPP schools. They have a, a significant number of, of kids on college campuses, many, many thousands at this point. Um, so I use those schools and, and that, uh, that data set as, as a comparison point. So as some listeners may know, um, back in 2014 or so, 2013, um, KIPP did a rather remarkable study, uh, and again, they were one of the first big no-excuses uh, charter school providers. They looked at their initial cohort of, of graduates, uh, kids who had been with them through middle school, and found, and forgive me, this is from memory, so uh, I may not have the data exactly right, that roughly 33%, I think roughly one in three of their graduates had persisted and graduated from college within six years. So on the one hand, you can say, well, look, uh, if you are a uh, low-income person of color, your chances at birth of someday being a college graduate are what, 8 10%? Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah. so therefore, tripling it. huge success, right? You, yes. you've, they've, they've, they've increased the odds by a factor of three. But recall that KIPP's own standard was, well, we want uh, our students to be successful at the same rate that well-off white kids are. And that's more, that's closer to 75%. So right, by that metric... 60%. Is, is that what yeah, it is? Okay. It's really not. Okay, yeah, but yeah. it's still... But it, it, they, had, yeah. they had undershot their own their own goal. And and I believe in the years since then, uh, they've crept up closer to it. I don't think they've they've crossed the 50% threshold yet. I think they're in the 40s somewhere. But what, what, what was more interesting is what they did... In response to that, they um, they kind of loosen the reins on some of the the, the no excuses uh, discipline in classroom management. Try to give the kids a little bit more agency. I mean, as I recall, some of the I wrote about this for Education Next a few years ago. Some of the feedback that they were getting from their graduates were like, "Look, you just did everything for us. You know, you didn't give us the room. You know, so when we got to, to college, we didn't have the skills necessary to flourish on our own." Um, and, and also, KIPP started uh, rather aggressively, programmatically, 
kind of keeping attached to kids, like following them through college, offering them kind of counseling and services, working out with them to get them in the right fit college schools that were successful with, with their demographic group, et cetera. To, to, as far as I know, Eva Moskowitz and Success Academy are doing absolutely none of this. They are just assuming at this point that they are graduating well-prepared young men and They're women. They're going to have to learn the hard way. Well, I, I, I don't want to say because, you know, never... Uh, There's the one thing I would, I would caution against. It's underestimating Eva Moskowitz. Uh, she, um, you know, she has launched a successful charter network of four dozen schools. I'm just the guy who wrote a book. So, so let's talk about... So there have been many more students who've left Success Academies and gone back to a high school. Yeah. How is that working out? Yeah, well, this this gets back to that issue uh, that that they are often criticized of. In other words, if a, if a student is unsuccessful and doesn't mesh with their culture, then they get thrown back into the mix in the neighborhood. Or they schools. just graduate out too, right? If they don't have very many high schools, or are they keeping oh, their their no students? their attrition rate among students is is rather profound. So, in other words, the first cohort and forgive me, I don't have this these these numbers by heart. But two years ago, their first graduating class had something like 16 or 17 students. And those were uh, the, the survivors, so to speak, from an initial cohort of, I believe, 75 or some such. So they, they had a significant attrition rate as they go along because they don't backfill, as they say. They, they backfill up to and including fourth grade. But if, if a student leaves in fifth, sixth grade or beyond, that seat stays empty. So there's, there's kind of a pyramid structure where they start with a lot of kids in kindergarten. And look, you know, the, some of this is a little bit unfair uh, because uh, low-income families tend to be highly mobile anyway. Uh, so, you know, you'd expect uh, a certain amount of churn regardless. Uh, but then given these other conditions that they impose on families, it does seem not unreasonable to say that, that some families just say, look, this is just too much. I mean, and kids just, just uh, have, have had enough of it. So do we have any indication? Uh, maybe it's just too difficult to find out how students are faring once they return to their... Yeah, I, I, I have not seen any good data on that. Uh, but it does seem like it should be, uh, just like you see here in Boston, some of the, the, the comparisons of lottery in, lottery out uh, families that I guess Roland Fryer and others have done uh, up here. Uh, I, I don't believe that study has been done. Of, of kids who um, lottery in, lottery out at a success academy, or who go back to, to your to your uh, point, uh, who who get uh, a, a treatment as it were for a few years and then and then end up uh, matriculating someplace else. That'd be, that'd be fascinating to see. Well, I started off with the, uh, contrasting the politics with the with the success at success academy. Uh, so is that settling down? Uh, it, 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 part of it was this encounter between uh, Eva Moskowitz and, and the mayor of, uh, when he was first elected. Yes. <clears throat> and ha have they found a way of making... Uh, making Not uh, to my knowledge. No, no. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's still on a full boil. Um, you can go on Twitter right now and, and every day see uh, tweets from uh, Eva Moskowitz and, and Success Academy families chiding the mayor for, uh, I believe they're at present fighting over a school in Queens where there's a, a class of, of students, a couple of hundred students who literally have no school next year uh, because they've been promised space and, and they have, it has not become available. Um, no, the, the, look, the, the, the politics around charters in New York in general has grown quite chilly. Uh, we're up against a charter cap. Um, Moskowitz has said for years that her goal is to grow to 100 schools. I haven't heard that in the last year or two because there are no more charters available. 
Um, and I don't think that they have the capacity or the building space right now for the students that they already have. So that's, that seems to be where a lot of her energy is going, is to just get space for the student that she already has enrolled. So you've given us a very honest, straightforward, frank picture of what's actually happening at Success mm -hmm. Academy. So now I'm going to ask you sort of in conclusion, how, what's your overall judgment? Has this been a worthy <clears throat> undertaking oh, or yeah. is this just... Uh, Look, I, I think it has, uh, and, and I had to be, you know, try to be very precise in answering that question because the question that I seem to get asked most often, particularly among critics of Moskowitz and Success Academy, people feel like this is a gotcha question. They say, well, would you send your child to Success Academy? And my honest answer is, well, what are my choices? Uh, in other words, if I had to choose between an Upper East Side private school and Success Academy, well, I'd probably take the Upper East Side private school. If I had to choose between Success and the Catholic school, well, then which, which one? If I had to choose between Success and where I used to teach, frankly, I'd take Success and, and probably so would just about everybody. Um, so, in other words, it's, it's impossible to answer this question in an absolute. Um, and, and this is precisely the point, Paul. If you are a person of means in, in our country, you have right now in 2019 something approaching perfect school choice. You have either the means to opt out altogether to pay private school tuition. Uh, if your local zone neighborhood school is not to your liking, well, you can pick up and move. Uh, in the case of New York to you know, Greenwich or Scarsdale or Montclair, New Jersey or Jericho out on Long Island where I grew up. Um, and more pertinently, nobody will think twice about that decision. It is your perfect right and it is unquestioned. If you are a low-income person of color and, and you want to exercise that kind of a choice, well, suddenly that's a controversy. Uh, so something I think we need, we need to really wrestle with here is why is it a problem um, that, or, or more, why do we treat or think that we can treat low-income children of color as a public resource? So on the one hand, there's a conundrum here, because unlike a lot of folks in, in our world, in our work, the, 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 the world of education reform, I, I simply don't buy the idea that it has no effect when engaged and ambitious parents say, no, I'm going to pull my kid out of you know, PS277, I'm going to send her to Success Academy. As a, as a former teacher, I know the data. I look for them where I work. Just published research a couple of weeks ago that says if you once you, once you increase charter market share, it creates a rising tide that lifts all boats. I'm not unmindful of that. It just strains, strains my credulity <laughs> because I think I put myself back in 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 the minds uh, or if, you know, physically I can mentally put myself back in my old classroom and say, wait a minute, you're going to take. Tiffany and Dominique and Jonathan and three or four other kids like that who are dutiful and diligent, you're going to send them to Success Academy and then tell me my job just got easier? Well, that can't possibly be true. Um, and if it is, maybe you know, even if it's just an, an effective testing, it certainly says nothing about the, 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 the culture in my classroom and in my school. So look, it has an effect. And I, and I think we need to be honest about that. There's a but coming. There's always a but coming. The but is that we don't have the right to say to those parents, well, you can't have that, you know, because, again, nobody says that to me about my parent. So on the one hand, I hope we can lean into this complexity. I hope we can be honest with ourselves and say, well, look, yeah, there probably is an effect, but we don't have, this is not a policy question, Paul. This is a moral question. We don't have the moral right to say to anyone's child in the United States of America, oh, I'm sorry, you're a public resource. You have to stay here for the greater good. That's just not all right. 
So there is an equity question here. There yeah. is a matter it's of... It's just not the one we think. <laughs> there's equity uh, access to excellence, yeah. which is uh, the subtitle of your book, yeah. Equity, Excellence, and School Choice, the battle over school choice. So thank you very much for, for joining me, Robert, on at the Education Exchange. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. This is Paul Peterson on the Education Exchange. I am speaking uh, and delighted to have with me today on the Education Exchange, Robert Pondicio, author of How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle for School Choice. I am sure that you have enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Robert, for joining me. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. <laughs>